Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. Almost exactly two years ago, U.S. Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo, the former Rhode Island governor, joined us as the first guest on Rhode Island Report. At the time, she was only a few months into the job, so Jim Hummel from Rhode Island PBS and I decided it was time for an update. Our conversation after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Welcome back. I'm here with U.S. Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo and Jim Hummel, host of A Lively Experiment on Rhode Island PBS. Secretary Raimondo, Jim, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Ed, for having me. Thank you, Ed. Secretary Raimondo, before we dive into the issues, I just want to offer you condolences on behalf of Globe Rhode Island and Rhode Island PBS for the loss of your mother, Josephine. I know know she meant a lot to you. Would you want to share a memory of her? Well, first of all, thank you. Ed, for saying that. My mother meant everything to me. And, you know, uh, she was known in Rhode Island as grandma, because Mm -hmm. by the time I became into public life, she was mostly grandma to her six grandchildren. Uh, I would just say I owe everything to my mom. And I appreciate the outpouring of kindness and sympathy from everybody in Rhode Island. We come from the school of thought that says she'll always be with us. So, that's what I really believe and keep her close to me every day. I'm sorry for your loss. On, on a happier note, happy birthday. I see you had quite the cake the other day, and I see this weekend you're receiving an honorary doctorate from Brown University. So congratulations. Thank you, Ed. Yes, I've had a lot going on. You know, May is a busy month. I'm now 52, so I'm, <laughs> I'm catching up to you guys. Yeah, you're gaining on us. Say, when we talked two years ago, you said you were spending most of your time then pushing for legislation that would provide $52 billion to bolster semiconductor chip manufacturing in the United States. I hear that worked out. So bring us up to date and tell us if any of that money might come to New England. Yeah, thank you. It did work out. It was amazing the way it worked out. Huge bipartisan vote, thanks to the president's leadership, for $52 billion to invest in the semiconductor industry. I don't know if some will come to New England. It would be wonderful, you know, if the money gets spread all over the country. We put the application out February 28th. 
We already have over 300 statements of interest from companies all around the country, including from 37 states. So it'll be very competitive. Any of those applications from Rhode Island are nearby, Massachusetts? The lawyers tell me we're not allowed to say which states or which companies, but I can tell you it's from 37 states around the country. So it's a broad cross-section all across America. I remember Republican senators accused the Biden administration of using the chip factory funds to further what they called woke ideas, such as requiring some recipients to offer child care and encouraging the use of union labor. What's your response? My response is that we are doing those things, not because it's social policy, but because it's necessary to make these projects successful. We think we're going to create about 120,000 construction jobs building these fabs, another half a million jobs working in the fabs. We need women to, to do some of those jobs. If you want women to work, you need childcare. As for union, you know, there's no requirement to use union. We are encouraging project labor agreements. And I can tell you, Ed, from my time as governor, PLAs are the way to go for these big, complicated projects if you want them to be done on time, on budget. So uh, it's, I think, kind of a cheap political shot to call them woke. The reality is it's all about meeting the mission and having the talent we need. Secretary, I apologize in advance because at some point during this interview, I'm going to call you governor, like <laughs> old habit. So, it is still uh, my favorite title, I should say. Old habits die hard, but I will call you Madam Secretary. I'm curious, you know, China's Commerce Minister is going to be visiting the United States next week for meetings with you and Washington's top trade official. What are you hoping to get out of that meeting and what's your message to him? That is as yet an unconfirmed meeting. Here's what I would say more broadly about China. We're hoping to, and I'm hoping to, increase communication. So due to COVID and such, we haven't had travel. And so the the goal is to increase our communication, work with them where we can, reduce tension. You know, the way I think of trade and China generally is... We have to protect what we must, but trade where we can. So we're protecting our technology, but we also need to continue trade because a lot of American jobs depend upon trade with China. So I'm fierce about protection of technology, but also want to increase communication so that we can, you know, solve problems, get things done, de-escalate tension and continue to trade. Speaking of China, you were among three cabinet members addressing the Senate Appropriations Committee this week. You said, we've never been more aggressive in using the Commerce Department's tools to address the threats from China. So tell us about that. What's, for instance, what's the Commerce doing to address the theft of intellectual property in China? So we're doing everything we can to enforce, you know, make sure that China plays by the rules, doesn't steal our IP, doesn't do any underhanded trade tactics. When I said that at the hearing... Uh, What I meant was that since I've been Commerce Secretary, we've put over 200 Chinese companies on the entity list, which means we can't sell to them, which is about a quarter of all the Chinese entities on the list have been put there in the past couple of years since I've been here. Last month, we leveled the biggest ever penalty, $300 million dollars, against a U.S. company because they violated our export controls and sold hard disks to Huawei when they weren't supposed to. So, you know, 
as I said before, we're going to protect we're going to protect America, protect our technology, make sure China doesn't get our technology to use in their military equipment. We're really serious about that. Secretary, we don't have to tell you that the political climate is challenging in D.C., but right from the get-go, even before your confirmation hearings, you reached across the aisle to Republicans. I'm wondering how that has worked in terms of gathering bipartisan support for maybe any significant projects that you're working on. It's very effective. And I will say, Jim, that I learned that as governor. It's really not that different, whether it's the Rhode Island State Legislature or, you know, the U.S. Congress, which is to say you have to spend time with legislators. You have to really hear from them, hear their concerns from Republicans and Democrats. You know, I'm really proud of that. I spend as much time with Republicans as Democrats, as much time with senators as House members. It helps. It helped to get chips passed. It helped to get the broadband bill passed. But honestly, it helps now in implementing because we'll be investing in red states and blue states. As we speak, the Biden administration is trying to reach a deal with Republicans in Congress to raise the $31.4 trillion debt ceiling. So what's at stake if no agreement is reached by June 1st when we'd risk default? Everything's at stake. We have to get it done. I'm proud of the president and the way he's leaning into it. The economy is at stake. People's jobs are at stake. Providing critical public services are at stake. The economy is in a good place. People are working. Unemployment is low. But it's, it's fragile. You know, you, I don't have to tell you that. Supply chains are still a little bit challenged. Inflation is still a challenge. We don't need this right now. I talk to CEOs literally every single day of major U.S. companies. It is the first thing they bring up with me which is to say, hey, please, we have to do everything we can. Don't let the United States default. It would just crush this economy. Yeah. Do these debt ceiling concerns tie in with what commerce is trying to do to compete with China? Yes, absolutely. The United States needs to be strong, needs to be a global leader. And in order to do that, we need to have a fully functioning government. We need to be able to have you know, people have confidence and, and faith in the full faith and credit of the U.S. We need to pay our bills. To be crystal clear, this isn't about spending more money or asking to spend more money. This is about paying the bills for money that's already been spent by Democrats and Republicans. So if we want to lead in the world, we need credibility. And defaulting, you know, China will see that and it's a sign of weakness. I also wanted to get a quick update on TikTok. Is the administration considering banning TikTok in the United States if Beijing-based ByteDance refuses to sell its shares in the company? There is a bill working its way through Congress right now, which the president supports, which I support, which we're working hard on, called the Restrict Act, which would have the effect of doing that. But it wouldn't be limited to one company. And I really think that's the right way to do it. So... Look, I'm very focused on national security implications with TikTok and, and any of these companies. You know, these tech companies pose national security risks, data privacy risks. And I don't think the right way to do it is to outlaw them one at a time. You know, today we're worried about TikTok. A month from now, it'll be another company. So I think the right thing is to, to pass this Restrict Act. By the way, that act would give commerce the tools to effectively outlaw or ban those kinds of companies. I know the ACLU and other groups have raised concerns that it would give government too much power in terms of First Amendment issue. Listen, there are First 
Amendment issues for sure. And this is, of course, a balance. Like I said, this is a bill working its way through Congress. Congress will weigh the national security issues with the free speech issues and make sure that free speech is protected. But there's no denying that that company and companies like it pose very significant national security risks, and we have to do something about it. Secretary, one last question for me. I saw that the Department of Commerce has recommended almost $700,000 for projects in Rhode Island to make communities and the economy more resilient to climate change. Where would that money go exactly? It would depend who applies. You know, it's a competitive process, and uh, most of it is for what we call climate-ready coasts. So there will be groups that have to apply for that as it relates to, like, wetland habitats, preserving Narragansett Bay. I think the city of Providence is going to be receiving some of the money. So anyway, it's all around preserving our coast and coastal habitats. Frankly, I hope creating jobs in Rhode Island. While the CHIPS Act has received a lot of attention, I know the Infrastructure Act provided $42 billion for the broadband equity access and deployment program. So how much could Rhode Island see for broadband access? So they'll see a minimum of $100 million and probably more than that. Right, so $100 million for every state, no matter how small we happen to be? Yes, exactly. Every single state gets $100 million, no matter how small you happen to be. And by the way, Rhode Island can thank their hardworking federal delegation for that, fighting for little states to get that small, it's called a small state minimum. And then on top of that, Rhode Island may get a little bit more, but we haven't figured it out yet. There's a, there's a formula in the law that we have to follow. As a former governor, that is a massive amount of money for the state of Rhode Island. And it is certainly enough to make sure that every single Rhode Islander has the Internet at a price they can afford, has a computer or some piece of hardware so that families and small businesses can connect to the Internet. So if implemented correctly in Rhode Island, which I believe it will be, this is huge. In Roadmap, Dan McGowan had an unsolicited idea to make sure that all public and senior housing in Rhode Island has free or close to free wireless Internet. What do you think of that? I think it's a great idea. I mean, it's up to the governor and it's up to the team on the ground to figure out how to use their money. But that's exactly the kind of thing that this money should be used for. I say all the time, you know, now, of course, I represent the whole country and there's a lot of rural America there's not really rural Rhode Island. I, I know extra West Greenwich and such is rural, but it's not like New Mexico, North Dakota, South Dakota. The challenge in Rhode Island with broadband and the internet is exactly what you just said, Ed, which is senior high rises, affordable housing high rises. The actual building isn't connected or the apartments aren't connected. There's right. broadband in the community, even in the neighborhood. We got to get to the business of getting it hooked up to every high rise, every apartment and have it be affordable. Right. So I think that's the kind of thing that's what, what we're talking about here. And what's the timing on that money? When might that arrive in Rhode Island? We are announcing at the end of June how much money Rhode Island will receive. Then Rhode Island has to give us their plan. You know, they have to give us a state plan for how they plan to spend the money. 
So as soon as they get that to us, we will approve it and get the money out the door. So it's, it's hard, honestly hard for me to say. It depends how quickly Rhode Island gives us their plan. So last question. I know you're familiar with challenges of Rhode Island tourism campaigns. Give us your thoughts on the seven-foot stuffy that the state is now putting in airports around the nation to promote tourism. I'm embarrassed to say I did not know about that. A huge clam in airports, seven feet tall. And the idea is that's going to get people to come to Rhode Island. Well, I do love stuffies. <laughs> <laughs> I love stuffies with the Narragansett beer in the summer. It's amazing. So I hope it works. All right. Secretary Raimondo, Jim, thanks for joining us Thank today. Thank you, Secretary. Bye, you guys. Nice to talk to you. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. And if you like the podcast, do us a favor. Follow the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all, anytime, and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.